talking baseball. Klazuski, Campanella talking baseball. The man and Bobby Feller, the scooter, the barber, and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. I can't help it. I don't know about you folks, but when I hear that song, I get goosebumps. Probably because Mickey Mantle was my idol, and I got to meet him, play in his golf tournament in Joplin, Missouri. Willie Mays, I actually played against and have a picture prominently displayed in my home uh, with him, myself, and Henry Aaron. A lot of home runs between those three guys. And Duke Snyder became a personal friend. Um, he lived in North San Diego County, a little town called Fallbrook, and uh, was a great guy. And one of the three, as good as they were in the game of baseball. Good evening and welcome to Dirty Kurt's Dugout. This is Kurt Bavacqua, episode three. And if you remember and heard episode one, I referred to a group of folks, a group of my former peers, a group of former Major League Baseball players as the Lost Boys of Summer. We are going to be talking about that tonight. We're going to go back and visit. And you know what? I think it's going to be a steady diet of Lost Boys of Summer for the next few episodes of... Dirty Kurtz dugout because the more I look into this stuff, the more stuff unfolds. Just an article that I saw today for the first time, and I'll get with Dick and our other guests here in one second. But I I just want to uh, try to explain to you so that they don't have to get into it and they can get right into the way they feel about things is that players – between 1947 and 1980, or in other words, from 1947 to 1979, were not afforded any Major League pension money if they did not play in the Major League level for four years. That was four full years at the Major League level. And trust me when I tell you, trying to sit here and explain this entire situation to you in a 30- or 40-minute podcast is absolutely impossible. We're going to try to get into it with these guys, like I said to you. The other guy is going to be Jerry Janowski. He's another former Major League pitcher that falls into that category, a guy that played in the Major Leagues, but he didn't get his four years in. And because he played before 1979, he doesn't qualify for a Major League pension or Major League Medical Benefits. We will talk about that. We'll talk to Dick, Jerry. We're also going to talk to Jerry Royce, a guy who is afforded a Major League pension because he spent 22 years in the Major Leagues, had some kind of career. And you know what? I have a feeling that we're also going to hear a couple of these. Babakwa. Babakwa. Oh, yeah. You know why? Because Jerry played for Tommy Lasorda on my favorite team, the Los Angeles Dodgers. You know, that's not. And also, Terry Cannon, the gentleman that started 
an organization called Baseball Reliquary. You don't know what that is? Well, guess what? Neither did I until about two months ago when I found out that they nominated me for the Shrine of the Eternals, which is their highest honor. And it's no slouchy honor. I mean, we're talking about Roberto Clemente, Yogi Berra being in it. Are you kidding me? I want to find out what's going on. And we're going to talk to Terry Cannon tonight. But first, let's go to the two guys that I promised you, Dick Bainey, Jerry Janeski. Dick Bainey's my former teammate from, wow, I don't even want to say how far back. Dick, Jerry, how are you guys? Hey, uh, good. Yeah, it is going pretty far back. Uh, I played with him, too, so uh, we must be pretty old. Oh, my goodness gracious. It's uh, I've talked to Dick a couple of times in the last couple of months about this, uh, I guess you could call it an issue, uh, that sits before a lot of people. And that is uh, guys that fell into this hole, so to speak, between 1947 and 1979 that did not have four years of major league service. And the reason that it's become such a big deal is because that the Players Association and the owners negotiated a contract during the 1980-1981 collective bargaining agreement where going forward, players that played for 43 days at the major league level qualified for a major league pension. And I I also will throw out that after one day of major league service, they qualify for medical benefits. Yeah. That's something that we will talk about as we get into this thing. But I would like to know your two guys' position on this. Well, who you wanted to start off, Dick? Are you there? Jerry, go ahead and start. Okay. You know, my position is this. I'm just uh, happy to be alive. I just got done with a hip replacement surgery a couple of weeks ago, so I'm excited about having something to do this evening. It's just kind of exciting for me, uh, Kurt. So uh, you, you broke up my evening here, so good deal. <laughs> but I'm glad the, we could do that. Uh, the other thing is uh, let me just tell for anybody listening out here that I'm strikingly handsome, just to give you a good visual of who's talking here, just to kind of set the stage. Well, I'm I'm much more excited about going on with the interview now. <laughs> All right. Well, exactly. Uh, you, you know, right now we're in a position that we've got uh, thrown some dollars that came our way from the help of, I guess, Dan Foster, who uh, kind of got behind the cause from the uh, baseball players alumni and uh, got some money thrown our way, which I think is terrific. Uh and I'm kind of remiss or concerned about overstating or digging in too deep on a certain opinion because I don't want to impact how professional baseball or future negotiations might come into play by somebody saying these guys are resentful and they're not happy with things and, uh, you know, screw them. So all that being said, it just seems to me on the whole issue of pensions and whatever that people should be able to get equal pay for equal contributions. And that cutoff period of 1980 just kind of, uh, in general, sits to me as some kind of a point that uh, of demarcation that I can't really understand why 
it hadn't been put together retroactively when it was put together originally. And uh, so, you know, my position on it would be I think we should get equal pay for equal contribution. Uh, that's my feeling about it. And, and I don't think I tell you what, Jerry, I don't think you need to be you need to hold back anything. And I'll, and I'll tell you why, because I've talked to uh, Steve Rogers. I've talked to Dan Foster. I've talked to Kate Hutchison. Um, all people that I made a phone call to, along with the scores of alumni players and uh, executive with Major League Baseball teams to try to gather information on what the hell's going on with this situation. Not only this one, but others that I've come across, such as coaches that are afforded Major League Pension and how they become the person that's appointed. If a team has five or six coaches, only four of them can be appointed, and they're appointed by that Major League team. It doesn't have anything to do with any negotiations it's been grandfathered in. That's the way it's been. That's the way it's been left. And I can't believe nobody ever talks about that. And I'll, and I'll give you a perfect example of why I feel that way. Because the reason I found out about this, and the re- I fell on it, actually, but the reason I looked into it was because of, of a guy I know well by the name of Dave Hilton, who died last September 17th. When he died, so did the payments that the... Major League MLB and also the Players Association that were making to all the former players, such as yourself, uh, as little or as much as it is, however you want to look at it, uh, those those payments stop. So his widow of 47, 48 years, Patty Hilton, now gets absolutely nothing. Except I also found out that there's such a thing as a minor league pension. I never knew that before. And Dave Hilton actually gets a minor league pension from all the teams that he coached in the minor leagues with for at least one year. So when I talked to Dick Bainey in the last couple of days and we were talking about him coming on this show and just talking about things, he is on the line, right? Yes, I am. Oh, hi, Dick. How you doing? How are you? I'm doing great. You know, I referred to that article that you were talking about in the Orange County Weekly, mm-hmm. and I think it was published back in, two, I want to say 2012. Am I right? Correct. Okay. Uh, in reading that, I read where Jim Hutto is one of the players that falls into the class that we're talking about, the Lost Boys of Summer. Correct. Have you ever talked to him, and does he know about the availability of a minor league pension? Uh, in my conversation with him, he has not been told anything i will inform him inform him of what you just said just now because i don't think he realizes all right and let me tell you something about that i don't think phone calls are being made to guys that have a minor league pension coming i think they need to find out themselves and make the phone call i think you're absolutely correct and i will spread that information believe me thank you okay now you told me that with the exception of a couple of minor details, that this article was pretty right on. Yes, it was. Okay, great. So I'm going to go to it, and I shocked myself when I read this. Okay. And I'm going to read it real quick. 
Due to negotiations over the years between owners and players' union, I'm quoting this art this article and the author of it being uh, being written back in 2012. If you played at least five years before 1947, over in the Negro leagues before Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier that same year, you receive annual $10,000 pensions, medical benefits, and once you die, coverage is extended to your spouse or children. Is that a true statement? Uh, that was Matt Coker that wrote that statement. And uh, where he got that information, I'm not sure. I know he contacted a lot of different people to, to get everything as exact as he possibly could. He was a real professional about that. Uh, to my knowledge, that's the way I understand it also. Okay. So as far as you're concerned, Matt Coker knew everything that he wrote in here, and he got that information from somebody. Because this is something, you know that I've been digging into this mm-hmm. for the last few months, and this is something that I didn't know and that I didn't ask anybody because I never even thought about it. Uh, whatever you see parentheses in, that is my quote. The other information are things that Matt Coker did a lot of investigating. He called a lot of different people, players, uh, management. He did a lot of investigating, and uh, those are his statements. Okay. So we we talked, um, I think, a little bit with Jerry before you were on the line. What is your position on this? My position is this, uh, and you could probably relate to this. <clears throat> Most of us signed out of high school. Now, the reason we signed out of high school and didn't go to college is because scouts, including my scout, Joe Stevenson for the Red Sox, would put pressure on us to sign or in the next, we'd have to wait for the next draft, and it would be $10,000 less than what they were offering. And I don't know if that was a combined effort through the scouts or, or management of baseball, but that's just the way it was. Now, when we signed baseball, and I think you can relate to this, if you were a prospect, you were sent to the Instructional League, okay? So you weren't working. You were still playing baseball. And if you went to the Instructional League and you were a prospect, as I was, there was a good chance that the Winter League was going to pick you up. And you'd go to Venezuela, Puerto Rico, or Dominican Republic to play baseball. You didn't have time to go back to school. And by the time you were out of baseball, I played for almost 10 years. By the time I got out of baseball, I had a high school education. The best years of my life were gone. I had to work. I couldn't go back to school. We had, on the Seattle Pilots, which I played on, we had a gentleman by the name of Billy Williams. I don't know if you, not the Billy Williams with the Cubs, another Billy Williams. Mm -hmm. 16 years in the minor leagues. He didn't have an opportunity to go back and play baseball. When he got out of baseball... He was flat. And when I say flat, emotionally, uh, he had to go to find the most minimal job he could find to put bread on the table. The bell had rung. So I think the ball players of that day, it's not relative to today's player. These players, and I want get me right, Kurt, I want them to get every penny they can because we didn't get it. We were not allowed to have an agent. If you were offered a contract... Even when you signed, if you didn't sign that contract, you had to wait till the next draft. And the money was going to be less, according to Joe Stevenson. So we were pretty much forced to play. 
we didn't have the opportunity to have an agent to get into the books to find out what baseball was really making in concessions, uh, parking, radio, TV, uh, attendance. We didn't have that luxury. Our contract was put in front of us. If we didn't sign it after the season started, we were either banned from baseball or couldn't play for that entire year. Now, you would hope that maybe you could be traded. That was a... uh, that was questionable. Well, but, you were bound back then. You were bound to the team that you signed with for life. For life, for life, and you took whatever they offered because if you didn't sign that contract, you were you weren't going to play that year, and you had to put bread on the table. So when people say things are, are, are relative to today, I don't think so. In the big leagues, minimum salary I made in '73 fifteen thousand dollars. How can you say that's equivalent to the 550000 they're making today? That is not 100% difference from what I made, the 15000 That's 30 times, 37 times 15 goes into 550. So I know, and, and you know what? We never had bill issues back then either. That, that was weird, wasn't it? Yeah. No, we, <laughs> we were survivors. We made it work, and uh, we worked hard. Uh, you come to mind is one of those people that were a hard worker, dedicated, focused. You knew what you were going to do and what it took to get there, and my hat goes off to you, Kurt. Well, I don't know if I knew what it was going to take to get there, but I sure tried damn well hard. I can tell you that. Let's go back to a couple of important dates in my mind. Okay. And that is the negotiating period uh, of this collective bargaining agreement that Marvin Miller and Don Fear did in the 1980-1981 season. And then also, let's jump forward to 2011 when through a combination of quite a few things i believe based on uh all the investigative work that i've been able to do and the information that i found out and i think the leaders in this were the major league baseball players alumni association now i want the people out there to realize that there is a difference between the major league baseball players alumni association and the Major League Baseball Players Benefit and Plan and Association. And that difference is the Alumni Association is based out of Colorado Springs, and that's not what the difference is. They are an outside organization that have no affiliation at all with the Tony Clark's organization that you're talking about, which is the Major League Baseball Players Association. They're two different entities. So when you hear us talking about those, make sure you know that you can divide them up. Thank you for bringing that up, Kurt. I'm going to give you my own personal feeling about that, okay? Yes, please do. These, Major League Baseball is owned by owners. Whatever they say, that's going to happen. Now, you can delegate to Major League Baseball Alumni or Major League Baseball Alumni Association But nothing happens without these owners' approval. And I'll give you an example of that. Uh, There was a a kid by the name of David Clyde who lacked just a few days of getting his pension. He was one of us. I think he lacked like maybe a week or something like that. That's how close he was. And there are other players that have not benefited, benefited from David Clyde. But here's what Ted Turner did. He brought him up because he realized that he didn't have his pension and gave him those days in the big leagues. So 
my point is, you know, we keep looking at the alumni, we keep looking at uh, the association, but everything's going to filter down from, from the head man, who is the owner. That's the guy that's putting the money out. So I feel like if we were to be put back into even the pension, it would be from the owners. And uh, dividing it up and saying, well, this certain amount of money is going here, that certain amount of money is going there, do you realize, I think you realize, because I think you're the one that brought it to my attention, I thought uh, the 30 Major League Baseball teams, uh, the net value was 1.3. I'm not sure if it was you that brought it to my attention, and, they said, and they, I was told that it was closer to 1.5. That is a lot of money when you take 30 teams, and the average of each team is 1.3 or 1.5. You're talking about the value in billions of dollars of that major league franchise. Exactly. To okay. give you an example, uh, when Finley owned the uh, Oakland A's, okay, championship team, that was in the 70s, I believe. He sold that team for $12.5 million, okay? That means that 12.5 right now, this is how good baseball's doing. Why can't they take care of these guys with <clears throat> broken backs, broken legs, uh, don't have money uh, to take care of their family? Uh, there's no insurance. They took the best years of their lives. Give something back to these guys. They deserve it. You know, let me tell you something. You know, when we went to spring training, there was an A team, there was a B team. Nobody wanted to be on the B team. The, the, the non-vested players, <laughs> like myself, were on the B team, okay? Who gave up all the home runs to, to people like Willie Mays, you know? Or uh, my, one of my teams was Johnny Bench. If you look at the records... Look at who gave, who gave up most of the home runs. And I'll bet you anything, it was the B-ball players. So, yes, we were part of this, this history of baseball. I hit my home runs against the B-ball players. Willie Mays hit his against anybody he wanted. <laughs> yeah, there were players like that. But you got to admit, who would you rather face? Carlton or Dick Bainey? Well, you tell me? I tell you what, I, I remember when you threw, I, I had pretty good success against Steve Carlton, but it doesn't matter who I, I wanted you to face. Like, right? I, I understand. You want to face a Koufax? I understand. You want to face a, a Gullet? Or do you want to face Dick Bainey? I understand where you're coming part, from. We were, I, I, I want to make this clear, and I think the fans realize it. We were part of this history. Well... Dick, we're going to continue this because it was like I said in the open of the show. We can't possibly cover everything that needs to be covered in one podcast. I've got a lot of information for you. It is virtually impossible to really even scratch the surface of all the different things. But I just found out from reading the article uh, that you turned me on to today because there's dozens and dozens and dozens of articles that have been written about this in the last few years. And there's also uh, people that, are that have taken up on social media with it. And there's a lot of attention being drawn to this right now. And I'm the one that's getting through to the players at the Alumni Association. And they're returning my calls. I'm getting through to Steve Rogers. I'll tell you one guy that I haven't gotten a call back from. And I'm going to cut him a little slack. 
Well, my hat's off to you, uh, Kurt. You're doing a good job because I can name you a number of ball players that have tried to get a t- hold of Tony Carr and Steve Rogers, and they don't even get a return. Write a letter, uh, phone call, email, nothing, zero. Well, I've talked to Steve. Uh, he returned my call, and he picked the call, and he picked the phone up one day. The the one guy that I haven't got heard back from has been Tony Clark. But like I started to say. I'm going to cut him a little slack because of everything that's been going on with the non-free agent signings, them having to make arrangements for those non-free agents that hadn't, or the free agents that hadn't signed yet to work out down in Florida. So he's had a lot on his plate uh, in the last three or four weeks since I've been trying to contact him, and I've only called him three or four times. So I'm going to cut him a little slack, but the slack will be taken up if it gets into a period where everything's settled a little and Tony Clark should be calling me back, he better. Kurt, uh, I want to I give you just a number here. Today, our group is making $621 a month, I mean for the month, up to uh, $9,375 after taxes. That, that, year, that was yearly, $621 or up to... Uh, 9,375, and I guarantee you 50% of those people, you can cut that 9,000 in half because that's where they are. There aren't too many people like Carmen Fanzone or uh, David Clyde that are that close, but they're there. Dick, I appreciate you coming on. I'm going to follow up with a couple of words after, uh, after you hang up. Trust me when I tell you we will follow up on this. Jerry, I really appreciate you being part of this broadcast also. Uh, I want to touch base on what Dick, uh, Dick just said uh, with the amount of money uh, that is the discrepancy between some players and others. The way they figured on this thing was that they went to $625, which accounts for 43 days. Every 43 days that these players that are not vested, and by not vested, they did not have four years of service. So anybody between 43 days in four years, fall into the group that we're talking about, the Lost Boys of Summer. Every 43 days is worth $625. Four quarters equal one year, which is $2,500. And 2,500 times four, which is almost four years, is 10000 So the payments go anywhere from $625 that Dick was talking about to up to almost $10,000 because if it was 16 quarters and a player had four years of service in, then he would be getting uh, not only $10,000, but he'd be getting a full pension from the Players Association. Like I said, it's confusing mural of things, and we're going to go over it. We're going to continue to go over it. We're going to be talking about it again. But for now, I have to turn my attention to my favorite team about 90 miles up the coast. And I've got to listen to this recording that I've heard over and over and over again. And you know what? I love it. But coming up is Jerry Royce. And in the meantime, we'll listen to this for a couple of seconds. Tell you what I think about it. I think that is very, very bad for that man to make an accusation like that. That is terrible. I have never, ever, since I've managed, ever told a pitcher to throw at anybody. 
nor will I ever. And if I ever did, I certainly wouldn't make him throw at a fucking 130 hitter like Lafay or fucking Bavacqua who could hit water if he fell out of a fucking boat. And I guarantee you this, when I pitched and I was going to pitch against a fucking team that had guys on it like Bavacqua, I sent a fucking limousine to get the I've heard it enough of Tommy Even though I like it And I think it's funny Sometimes you hear the people in the background When when Tommy's doing that His little deal There there must be a dozen people in his office Yeah I've listened to enough Of, uh, of our buddy Tommy uh, I've heard that I don't know A thousand times <laughs> But on the phone with us right now Is a guy that spent 22 years of a pretty brilliant major league career. I had uh, the opportunity to not only be his teammate, uh, but also his foe. And uh, he called me a few years ago out of a clear blue sky, and he goes, you know, I'm writing a book. And I went, oh, no, here we go. And he goes, uh, do you think I'd get a few minutes of your time? And I said, sure, Jerry. And uh, I'm well presented in the book. Uh, and I appreciated that. We will talk to Jerry about his book. Uh, and we will talk about his former manager, and we will talk about his career. First, I'd like to welcome Jerry Royce. Hey, Jer. Hey, Kurt. How you doing, man? I'm doing fine. How are you? It sounds like you're, what's going on in your studio is out of control. We're going to bring it back to some sanity? Uh, well, it's only out of control because you're a former manager, but that's, uh, I'm <laughs> sure that the clubhouse was out of control a few times, too. Well, so. you know, like you, you had a long career, comparatively. And you saw a couple of times, just like I did, some crazy things that happened during the course of time that you played ball. <laughs> That's a so, true story. Uh, yeah. Hey, tell me something. Yeah. What is it about June with you? Did you did you correlate everything that all the good things that happened to you in June? You were born in June. You had a no-hitter in June. And then possibly, and correct me if I'm wrong, possibly the best game you ever threw was on June 11, 1982, where you recorded 27 consecutive outs in the game. Now everybody goes, that's a perfect game. Well, there was one problem. Eddie Milner, the leadoff hitter, reached on a double, and then you retire the next 27 guys. Isn't that something? Well, yeah, was that the best game you ever pitched? You know, I, I pitched in over 500, started over 500, something like that. And it's hard to define exactly what was the best game. But I will say this. Uh, I pitched in a World Series, threw a no-hitter, had a number of shutouts. Uh, but among the best games that I ever pitched, that would have to be one that you would have to consider. Now, it was a one-two pitch to Eddie Milner. I hung a breaking ball and got it up out over the plate. He drilled it in the left center. Now, Dodger Stadium in those days, you're going to get 35,000, 40,000 on a night that I pitched. Most of those people weren't even in their seats by the time it happened. Uh, but eventually, uh, I got through that inning, and I never gave it any kind of thought until the end of the ball game when somebody pointed out, do you realize what you just did? And then I said, well, son of a gun, how about that? And it's like we talked about the other day when, when we visited and told some real stories that you can't tell on the phone. It's an asterisk in my career. And if you stick around long enough, you're going to have a whole bunch of those uh, that you're going to one day recall and say, I did that, I did that, and I did that. So that's one of them. 
yeah, that was an incredible game. Well, if you go down to one of the local bookstores, you can find Bring in the Right Hander, uh, Jerry Royce, my 22 years in the major leagues. I found it uh, refreshing reading. I found it accurate, which is hard to say about former players' books. <laughs> and he was right on with a lot of the stuff that he wrote about me. No, I should say all of the stuff that he wrote about me. Uh, it, it was, you know, it was fun doing it. And what did you get out of writing that book, Jerry? You know, what's interesting is that the time was right because I've been contacted by a number of sports writers and said, you want to do a book? Let's sit down and do a book. And I said, no, I'm just not ready yet. But the stars, I guess, aligned themselves. The planets were in order. And I sat down at my computer. I'm upstairs in my office. And I told my wife who's sitting downstairs, I got a story. Let me email it to you. She said, okay, got it. And two or three minutes later, I can hear her laugh. She says, you got another one? And I said, I'm writing one. Let me send that to you. So I sent it to her, Another, and the same kind of reaction, got another laugh. This time she came upstairs and said, you know, if you can find a way to string together a number of stories like this, you might really have something here. So give it a shot and see which way it takes you. Now, it was a three-year project, and I worked on it when I had time. And I started putting some things together, and um, what was interesting, among other things, is that there were a lot of things that I remembered, but I misremembered them. And then going through the, uh, all, the, all that was available on the Internet as far as games pitched or a particular story, if I was unclear about it, I gave the player a call, a cold call like I did with you. And it, one thing it did, it allowed me to connect with a lot of former teammates, many who I haven't talked to, in over 25 years. Other guys were sometimes 30 years. So they either thought I was crazy or, or they were sure of it after that phone call. <laughs> uh, but another thing that it allowed me to do is tell the story the way that I remembered it. And since I've written a book, that was in 2014, I've looked back and I said, you know, I'm glad I said what I said because, in a sense, I've walked through one door and into another. I can leave that part of my life behind because it's already been said. And then turn on to some new challenges and some new things. And that's probably the biggest thing that it's allowed me to do. Well, you're only one of 29 players that played in four different decades. That really uh, is saying something. I mean, you, uh, your major league debut was in 1969. You played in 1970. Of course, you and I were teammates with the Buccos in 1974. Uh, you played in 1980, of course. And then you finished out your career in 1990. And I couldn't find in your book, not that I look for it specifically, but just in going through it. And I haven't, I kind of skimmed through it. It was one of those quick reading deals. Anything that stands out in your career that, you can really put to the side and say, that was the most exciting time of my life. Well, it, it's because it's happened in small little pockets. Uh, there, were some, there were some great runs, particularly in 1980, when I ran off a string of wins. I think it was in June 1980. That, incidentally, was the same month that I pitched the no-hitter. Uh, but that was significant for me because in the three years prior to that, I had a record of 20 and 30 and an earn run average probably of over four. I can't remember the specific number. Uh, but those are the kind of numbers that get you released. If you can't produce any better than that, they can certainly find somebody younger and cheaper 
to come in and do the job. But for me, I stuck around, made some adjustments, and was able to salvage a career and get more 10 more years out of it. Now, when I started out, and I don't think anybody starts out saying, I want to have a 22-year career. Uh, it just happened that way for me. I was fortunate that I was in the right place at the right time and was able to produce enough to stay on the major league roster in some cases, and in other cases, contribute mightily to a ball club. But 22 years, I look back at it, and there was no formula. There was no plan to do it that way. Uh, like everybody else that's ever played the game, you do have a, a bit of security because perhaps you signed a long-term contract, or you had an idea that you were going to be a solid player either an everyday player or a pitcher that was in the rotation or somebody that was going to come in to a ball game out of the bullpen and hold things at bay. Uh, but if you're not that guy, you have to worry on a daily basis. Is this today? Uh, I got to do something today to make sure that they see me in a positive light uh, because you know that you're the 24th or 25th player on the roster. So for me, going as somebody who was a prospect in the future for the Cardinals back in 1969 when I was 20 years old. And during the course of that 22 years, I played just about every role on a ball club that you could. I was that guy toward the end who was concerned, am I going to make it through today? Am I going to make it through this start? If I win tonight and pitch well, will they keep me around for another one? Uh, so I run the gamut of just about every way that a major league ball player can feel. So you didn't have an exciting moment in your whole career? Oh, I had a bunch of them. Oh, okay. There, oh, there you go. I can tell you one that wasn't, and that's the cover of your book. And I'm going to tweet it out. I'm going to send it out on Facebook. I'm going to take a picture of this when I get back to the house, and I'm going to send it to everybody because I know everybody listening either follows me on Twitter or we're involved somehow in social media. You're going to love this because this is one of the big reasons for my call to you yep. is the little guy – that's on the cover of your book with you. And the look that you're giving him at this time, you don't know how happy that makes me feel because I know what you're saying right now. I know what's on your mind in that picture, and it's not good because Tommy Lasorda is on his way out to get you. Yeah, well, you can't buy that look anywhere else. No, you really can't. That is so perfect, and you don't know how bad. I want you to tell me right now that you can't stand him. <laughs> you know, there are people, uh, what I found with regards to Tommy Lasorda is that there's no gray area. You either love him or you hate him. Or if you're like me, you can do both because there have been times during the years that we've known one another where I've done both. Uh, he was instrumental in my career in that the time with the Dodgers, I joined the ball club, and I was, a, I was a fit in that it got the team to the postseason a number of years that I was there. But hated him because there were some times when uh, we, we butted heads about a number of different things, whether they were professional or, in my case, some things that I thought were personal and off-limits. So uh, when <laughs> the story behind that picture, and I'm glad that you're going you're gonna to text that out, I went through – maybe a couple thousand slides at Dodger Stadium. Uh, one after, it took two afternoons to do it. And I was looking for pictures, something that I can either put in the book or for something that belonged on the cover. And it was the second afternoon, about three hours into it, and suddenly I looked through my loop on the board, on the light board, 
And I said, that's my cover. That's the picture. And I showed it to Mark Langell, who's the Dodgers historian. And he says, you really think that's cover material? I said, for me, it says everything. It does. You can, it couldn't you can say anything look, more. You can look at my face and you know uh, exactly uh, what's on my mind. Uh, but I didn't do it knowing what the name of the book would be. In fact, I, I was toying with a number of different titles for the name of the book. And finally, one night, I just asked myself, what is the one thing, one thing that you heard constant on every team that you ever played for? And uh, it reminded me of the fact that I was taken out of a ball game, And when the manager signaled to get a, bull, uh, a, re- a pitcher out of the bullpen, being left-handed, he usually wanted to bring somebody in so that he could have right-hander against a right-hander. Mm-hmm. So the last thing that I heard and I knew that my day was going to be over was when the manager, and this was 15 different guys at one time or another, said to the home plate umpire, bring in the right-hander. We that know where the title how- came from. That's it. Yep. It's as easy as that. And trust me, folks, this picture is precious. And you know what? I do not hate Tommy Lasorda. I really don't. I have no reason to hate him. I thought the rant, which I call it, we heard it earlier in the show. And you know where he says my name. So special. (laughs) (laughs) If you haven't heard it, you can YouTube it. But keep the kids away. Because it's not that great. But, Jerry, this is the story that I understand to be true. And I know that you and Jay Johnstone were, uh, let's call it fun-loving. You guys loved to have a good time. Sometimes at the expense of even your manager. And the way I understand it is after... Uh, We had a little ruckus with you guys one night, and I'm talking about the Padres and the Dodgers. Um, I made a statement about Tommy and never followed up with it. Uh, But one of our players was hit in the helmet by Tom Needenfear. I don't know if you specifically remember this. And the uh, the writers came into our clubhouse, and uh, they they were talking about Needenfear being fined $500 for hitting LaFay in the head. And that's when I made my comment about Tommy and said that they should have fined uh, the guy that ordered him to throw the pitch. And, you know, was it unfair? It might have been at the time, but I still said it. But this rant that everybody's heard time and time and time again, especially when Healy was on the radio up in L.A., uh, and now I hear it all the time now even. It's, it's just one of those things, especially with social media. I heard you and Johnstone were responsible for sending in a guy that was with the local radio, Dodger radio station, like every other day until Tommy finally snapped. And you got the, you got this guy to ask him about what I said. I, I hope that's true because I love it when my friends are behind stuff that I enjoy. <laughs> you, you know, there were so many things that happened during those years. <laughs> Uh, especially with Jay and briefly with Ken Brett when he was with the ball club, uh, that happened on a daily basis. There was something funny that happened there every day. Ken Brett could hit. What's that? Ken Brett could hit. Yeah, he was a pretty good hitting pitcher. We're not talking about George Brett. We're talking about Ken Brett, the guy that was RT. We we were together in Pittsburgh, too. Yeah. You, me, and him. (laughs) 
those Pittsburgh days, we need we need a week of shows to go through oh, boy, some of those personalities and the things that happened. But getting back to Tommy, I don't recall doing anything special to stir it up. Uh, probably I did. And if something <laughs> yeah. was done, I was somewhere involved in there. And then it was more or less one of those things I go in there and stir the pot and get it bubbling and get somebody angry and then walk out and then let things just kind of fly. Jerry, I, I, I really appreciate you coming on. I can't thank you enough. Um, if you were the guy that stirred the pot, I love it. I know Johnstone <laughs> had to have something to do with it. I thought it was you and him. I saw you dressed up as uh, ground crew guys on quite a few occasions, dragging the infield during the, uh, <laughs> during the fifth inning. And I know Lasorda used to go crazy when you guys did that. But you know what? You had a good time in your career. I had a good time. That's one thing that we can both look back on. And we can say we didn't leave anything between the lines. We had a good time. We played hard. And then when we were playing, we had a good time also. That's Yeah, that's true. Remember, Willie, how, what he used to say, uh, his whole thought process about baseball? He summed it up in a couple of words. He says, you play hard, you work hard. And you know and, what? Nobody, A lot of people don't know how much of a shoe disturber he was. Oh, yes, he was. He loved to stir the pot. Willie, and we're talking about Willie Stargell, who yeah. to this day is one of my favorite players of all time. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you probably feel the same way. He was such a great guy. Yeah, he was a, he was a team leader that um, uh, very unique. And, you know, I, a lot of people, and they may have, you may have answered this question, you do radio now, uh, about, the, about how special it would be to play your career in one city. And if you have a long career – you're blessed for one because you have a long career, and two, you're playing in one city, and and you really feel like you're part of not only the team, the organization, but also the community. Uh, but there's also a blessing on the other side when you play for a lot of teams. Now, me, I bounced around, played for eight different clubs, and I played in cities that I would have never dreamed of playing in had it not been for the fact that fate had me traded or somehow signed with the club in that particular city. And because of that, I met a number of great players, great people within that city. And I don't know how you compare playing all of your career with one team or all of your career with a number of teams. I look at it as advantage the way we did it. We had a chance to experience people in both leagues uh, and come across people that otherwise we'd have never had the chance to be around. So for me, I like the way it happened. And I'm sure that's the same way you feel as well. It is. I, uh, I wouldn't trade too many things, although uh, I remember times where I was crushed in my career, and I remember times where I felt like I was on top of the world. But, again, I appreciate it so much, uh, my friend. We will talk again soon. And uh, good luck with your book. And for the folks out there, be looking for my tweets and social media posts because I'm <laughs> going to show you a great cover. Jerry Royce, thank you so much. Kurt, always a pleasure talking to you. We'll visit again, and let's make it soon. I appreciate it. My next guest on Dirty Kurt's Dugout started Baseball Reliquary. Reliquary. I'm sorry. Baseball Reliquary. It took me a while to learn how to pronounce it. Terry Cannon, the gentleman that is coming on, started this organization, and I was recently nominated, and I'm not brown-nosing here. I was recently nominated for Shrine of the Eternals because Terry Cannon doesn't have the final say in who gets enshrined 
into the baseball reliquary, Shrine of the Eternals. It's the voting process of all the members. That's the only thing I know about this organization, and that's the reason I wanted him on the show, because I've been nominated to be enshrined in this organization. And we're talking about Tommy John. We're talking about a gentleman by the name of Jim Creighton who died at the age of 21 and played baseball when it was an amateur status game back in the 1800s. And Jim Thorpe, Jim frigging Thorpe, possibly the greatest athlete of all time, is on the same ballot as Kurt Bavacqua for Baseball Reliquaries, Shrine of the Eternals, Terry, I welcome you to the show, and please explain to everybody listening about the baseball reliquary. Absolutely. Uh, thanks for inviting me on, Kurt. Well, the uh, the baseball reliquary is uh, a nonprofit organization based in Pasadena, California, and it's a kind of a traveling museum of baseball curiosities. And we started up uh, in 1996. The Shrine of the Eternals, which you referred to, is our organizational Hall of Fame. That started in 1999. This year will mark our 20th anniversary election. Uh, So this has been going on actually for for, uh, 19 years. And the way it works is anybody can join the baseball reliquary. The annual dues are $25 a year and vote in our election. And what we do is each year, right around the 1st of April, we send out a ballot containing 50 names. The members vote on those uh, names. They can, uh, not, they can uh, put on the ballot or nominate uh, up to nine uh, individuals. The top three vote-getters are automatically elected. Okay, so wait a minute, uh, wait a minute. I can join your organization? Absolutely. Okay. I send in my join. 25 bucks, <laughs> and then I can vote for myself. Absolutely. Oh, I love this. You could, you could certainly do that. And, and uh, in fact, we've, some of our uh, inductees uh, have been members of the organization. Uh, for instance, Jim Bouton has been a member of the organization since the get-go. Jim Bouton. Uh, and you know was, I drove him at a baseball? Did L- you really? Literally. So I got the that? last professional hit off of Jim Bouton. Okay, really? Hmm. He walked off the Very mound, good. into the dugout, into the clubhouse, out the clubhouse door the other side, and never put on a uniform again. Wow. Well, uh, Jim is, uh, is, has been a longtime member. He was elected to the Shrine uh, years ago. I think it was around 2001. And uh, he dubbed the baseball reliquary the People's Hall of Fame. Uh, Marvin Miller was a member for many years before he passed away. He was also inducted. He termed the baseball reliquary the Anti-Establishment Hall of Fame. So the the idea uh, is that we throw the record books out the window. We're not really interested. I mean, there are some uh, players who have been elected who have you know, really excelled tremendously on on the field of play. But we're really more interested in uh, uh, accomplishments that individuals have made to the game outside of the the record books. And so 
uh, you know, people can go on our uh, onto our website, baseballreliquary.org, and see all the people who have been elected. We've actually had 57 uh, people elected over the years. We do three a year, and it's been 19 years. So uh, there's there's a lot of people on there. Everybody from well, I mentioned Bowton, who's ha- who's having a birthday today. It's his 79th birthday. Dick Allen is also having a birthday today. He was elected. Uh, Mo Berg, uh, Cy Berger uh, of the Tops Company, Jim Brosnan. Mo, Ber- uh, Mo Berg, Mo Berg is the reputed yes. spy, wasn't he? Yes, yes, uh, and and he was he was elected. Um, Steve Delkowski, the legendary uh, uh, hard throwing pitcher who never made it to the major leagues, but was a minor league legend, considered one of the fastest pitchers of all time. Supposedly the fastest pitcher of all time. Yep, Doc Ellis, who who. You'll know down there because, of course, in San Diego is where he threw his, his infamous LSD no-hitter. Doc was in our first class of uh, inductees in 1999, spoke at our ceremony. Uh, Kurt Flood was also in that first class in 1999. Bill Spaceman Lee. Uh, and the name, And the names go on. Yeah, yeah, it's a great list. Of, That's a pretty a good group. And when I looked really, below my name and I saw Jim Thorpe, I almost fell off my chair. Well, the thing is, every year on the ballot, we have a real, it's it's a real interesting cross-section of of ball players and baseball figures. And not and not even everybody that's on the ballot is, uh, uh, is, is real. We have, uh, uh, the, <laughs> in fact, last year, Charlie Brown was inducted into the Shrine. Uh, Annie Savoy is on the ballot, uh, so if she gets elected, I don't know who's going to show up for her. But uh, you know, so it's it's uh, uh, very different from the Hall of Fame. Obviously, as you can see, we we kind of consider it as a kind of a, both an alternative and a complement to the Hall of Fame. But most importantly, it's an opportunity for baseball fans to ha- kind of have their say on who they would like to see recognized and honored. And that was a very important thing when we established this in 1999 and uh, Kurt Flood was elected in the first year. Uh, his, he was deceased and his widow, uh, Judy Pace Flood, came out and accepted on his behalf. And she uh, mentioned, she said, thank you to the, this organization because it allows the fans to have their say. It's not a, a, a bunch of writers or, or, or you know, people in a kind of a, a committee. It's it's basically baseball fans who have a real passion for the game, and and so we have about 300 members all around the country, and they're the ones who vote every year. And like I say, it it's open to the public, so anybody uh, who's so interested go online. Can, can join. Right? Yeah, just go online to baseballreliquary.org, and uh, they should do it pretty soon because the. Uh, your your membership dues have to be paid annually by March 31st because oh, yeah. the ballots go out on April 1st, and then not only do you receive the ballot, but you receive a uh, a, a biographical booklet that contains short biographies of all 50 candidates. And uh, because there's some people on there that are pretty obscure in terms of baseball history that not everybody knows about, and so, you have to learn about them. So do, yeah, we'll do that. Uh, and that's part of the fun is you, Absolutely. you know, in, in, in reading the biographical profiles, you learn a lot about interesting people in baseball history that you may not 
already know about. And so, and if you go on the uh, uh, web page, you can also uh, see the list of 50 candidates for this year. And you're featured because you're one of the you're a first-time candidate. So there's about a dozen of those this year. So we have little short biographical profiles of them, and and uh, and it's a great event. And then. Uh, in, in July of every year at the Pasadena Central Library, which is about a 200-seat auditorium, we pack the place every year. That's when we have our induction ceremony, and we honor uh, the three uh, inductees, and they're presented with an induction plaque, and uh, uh, it's, it's a great event, uh, and it's really a fan-based organization. Every year we start our proceedings at the induction ceremony by ringing a, a cowbell in memory of Hilda Chester, the great Dodger fan from from the Brooklyn days, and so uh, sounds like a fun like, time, Terry. Yeah, it's a great event, and, oh, and like I, I also group. wanted to uh, mention that another uh, San Diego person uh, of note was inducted a number of years ago, and that was Ted Giannoulis, the chicken, the San Diego chicken. That's right, <laughs> Terry. I want to thank you for the nomination. I want to thank you, of course, for coming on the show. Um, all everybody listening has got to go in and join Baseball yeah, Reliquary well, as a well, member and get on there and vote for me. What do you think? Well, I yeah, think that's I mean, a great good, idea. Good good luck to you in in, uh, in the voting process, Kurt. And Terry, and, uh, thank you. Great. I I appreciate the call. Thanks for coming on the show. Uh, that'll do it for episode three of Dirty Kurt's Dugout. Uh, next time, being that there's so much talk about relief pitchers in baseball, I think I'm going to go out and try to get one. We're going to call in the right-hander, as Jerry Royce would say, and I think I'll have Raleigh fingers on. We'll also go over fantasy, fantasy baseball, that is, and don't think for one minute we're not going to talk about the Lost Boys of Summer again. Goodbye, everybody. Well, KC was winning, Hank Aaron was beginning, one Robbie going out, one coming in. Kiner and Midget Goodell.